on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, a look ahead for the Tasmanian vegetable industry. You know, we're, we're hoping that fertiliser pricing will come back. But, you know, the same token, you know, we're, we're getting messages from seed companies that seed's going up, all machinery's going up. So that's that's a real challenge. And, and then you've got to get it. You know, we're putting orders in now for specialised machinery that's going to be, you know, 15 months. And Taz, women in agriculture looking at more face-to-face events next year. We're very looking forward to having more face-to-face COVID, as you know, interrupted all that face-to-face. We tried to continue events online, but it's just not the same. It worked, but it's not the same. It will never totally replace. A chat with Taz Women in Agriculture coming up with plans for next year and how are vegetable farmers going heading out of 2022 into 2023? We'll find out shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday, longest day of the year. Hope the weather's being kind to you wherever you are across the state. We will check the forecast at the halfway part of the program. And those of you who have been involved in selling or buying rural land this year will know it's been a huge year for the state, highlighted by the sale of a farm for over $110 million. We'll talk to an agent shortly to see how the rural property year has gone. And we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. That number is 0438 936 First up today, Australia shipping record amounts of wheat into China, despite the trade tensions. But getting a reduction in the massive Chinese tariff on barley may take a bit longer. That's despite the Chinese paying a high price to get barley from other countries. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has held talks with her Chinese counterpart. Analyst Andrew Whitelaw from Episode 3 has told Michael Condon he expects any changes will take some time. If we just look specifically at barley, at the moment... Uh, China, for any barley they're buying, is paying more than they need to. And the reality is if we had access to China, our, our farmers would get paid more for our barley, but the Chinese consumers would be paying less for their barley. So it would be a, a win-win situation, and I think that's, that's what we all want. But these things have got a habit of taking a long time, and uh, I'm not optimistic that we'll, we'll, we'll see a resolution uh, that will be a light speed. I think it will take a, it'll be a slow meandering process uh, for us to get access to China and then fix these problems that we've had over the last couple of years. So we don't send any barley at the moment? No, we're not sending anything to um, anything to anything to China. We've basically got a, a 80, 80.5% tariff, uh, which precludes us from being able to commercially send barley to China. So that's meant China's had to buy a lot of barley from all sorts of different places around the world, you know, France, Argentina, Ukraine, Canada, eh, but not from us. But but they switched through and bought a bit more wheat and a bit more sorghum from us. Quite a bit more wheat. I, I heard some, one commentator saying they bought record amounts of wheat from Australia last year. That's right, yeah. And, and I, look, at the end of the day, that's nothing to do with any our wheat being the best in the world or anything like that. It's just by virtue of the fact that We've had cheap wheat. We've had a situation in Ukraine where, you know, Ukrainian and Russian volumes have you know, dropped in terms of the export capacity with, with the ongoing conflict. We've had cheap wheat. We've had, you know, we're, we're into our third large crop in a row. We've had cheap wheat. It's been available, and countries around the world have been buying it because it's cheap. 
So with all the flooding in New South Wales, we've still got a record crop in WA, so that means it's there's plenty available. There's plenty of grain in Australia. You know, we've got, we got carryover from the previous year, and um, and, and the, the crops have generally been pretty well. And, and probably the, a lot of the quality is probably slightly better than people were expecting, even on the East Coast. So we've got the we've got the we've got the yields, and we've got the volume, and so it's going to be a large crop, uh, despite all the problems we've had on in New South Wales and Victoria. It's a big crop, and uh, and supply and demand comes into it, and we see these big discounts. We see this every time we have a big crop, uh, that the grain starts to become discounted, and that's just natural supply and demand. And in terms of the record in chi- record we're sending to China, how much are we sending? Like how much? How many million tons are we sending to China in wheat? Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head the, the actual number, but it's but it's but it's large, and we can see definitely the composition of our trade has changed a lot in the last couple of years. We've gone from heavily being an exporter of barley to China to really being a big exporter of sorghum and wheat. And so that's that's a real reversal in in in, in the trade flows, uh, but it's huge volumes. Uh, and that's what's interesting about it is China's been a big importer in the last two years of all grains, uh, corn, wheat, barley from around the world, and and we're just managing to pick up you know a big chunk of that. So is it a sign that they haven't had great seasons or great production of grain in China? That um, although they don't advertise it. Yeah, well, I think the fact that we've gone from, let's say, two or three years ago, they would import about 15 million tonnes or thereabouts of wheat, barley, corn combined. Uh, 2021, they imported about 55 million tonnes. And this year, slightly less, but still large volumes, I think about 30-odd million tonnes. That's normally the sign of a supply issue, not a demand issue. And so they have had issues around floods and droughts over the last two years. And so the expectation would be that it's probably not quite as rosy as um, as you would expect in China, or as they would have you feel. Right. So, they, but they never really advertise it. It's always a record year. <laughs> That's what they say officially, isn't it? Yep. The biggest belief when you consider how much they're buying. Correct. So, but I think that is is an, is an issue to look forward to is when they start going back to normal levels of imports, and it takes some demand away. Because as much as we have these perfect years, they do have a lot of grain production in China. Well, they're the world's biggest producer of wheat, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Mm, but they eat it all. And I think with, with Penny Wong, if we could just get some of that barley in, it would help pump up the price of the barley. Not to mention the wine. And the wine and remove some of the issues around meat. And lobster. Yeah, and, and But yeah, beef too. That would be a big fill-up for the beef industry too. It's a big market, and look, as soon as we get open to them again, we'll be importing large volumes of barley again into China. That's just the way it will go. We all be dependent on price. Andrew Whitelaw, a grain analyst with Episode 3, talking there to Michael Condon about the grain trade with China. Following uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong's visit to China this week, which has signalled a potential improvement in trade agreements with that country. But if the Australian lobster ban is lifted in China, what will happen to the domestic and emerging international markets that are taking its place? Seafood retailer and exporter Ferguson Australia's Group's Managing Director, Andrew Ferguson, says even if bans are lifted, it will take some time to trust the Chinese market again. Yeah, well, we, we can't uh, forget about China, I don't think, because it's you know, it's been our biggest trading partner. So, yeah, good to have relations being reset and hopefully getting back on track. 
Lobster markets did diversify since the initial bans. What might happen to those newer markets if China comes back on board? Well, we'd like to think we could keep diversified you know, as, as we've started out. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, not, not ideal stopping and starting and changing, you know, your business plan. Uh, I, I think we've done, a, you know, we spent a lot of money in developing new opportunities with new packaging and things for, for the local market as well. The local customers that we've got, you know, there's a, there's a lot in it. I guess uh, the, 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 we know China wants the lobsters uh, and it would be a shame to lose you know, to, to just to go all, all jump back into China again. Now, I'm a little bit mixed, I guess, in my feelings about it because uh, we've been bitten before and uh, we don't want to get bitten again and we'd have to make sure that it's, uh, you know, that the volatility of it goes, you know, is, is not there as much. It's sort of interesting question, really. Do you think that relationship's been permanently changed, that exporters might not ever completely trust the Chinese market again? Well... Yeah, you know, there's an element of that, that's for sure, because you wake up one morning, you've lost a whole lot of money, all your lobsters are on the tarmac dying, and, uh, you know, that was, it's, it's the risk, you know, there's no warning of it. We wake up and things have changed. So most other markets, we work through problems and, and you know, you've got a relationship where you can actually you know, see things coming, but it's hard when you don't see things coming. So, yeah, there's an element of, of uh, mistrust there that we have to rebuild again, I suppose. From both sides, I guess. So yeah, there's a lot of water to pass under the bridge, though, I think, before we get to that stage, I guess. And one of the things that happened in the last few years was an improvement in the domestic market. What might happen to that if lobsters start going back into China? I mean, we're, we're, we're like other buyers on the beach. We buy, we have to be competitive to buy lobsters from the fishermen. And uh, if the market, we've got to, if we can't compete and buy fish, well, we just can't buy fish for, the, for whatever market. And obviously, we want to achieve the highest prices we can for the lobsters uh, so that we earn the respect and the, and the trust of the fishermen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's how it works. So, the, obviously, the, the market that pays the, the most money generally gets the, gets the fish, I guess. Now that we're a few days out of Christmas, how has the local demand been? Oh, it's been very, very good. You know, we're cooking flat out every day here and Port MacDonald. Uh, and a bit in Lincoln today too, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been very good. I mean, the supermarkets have, have got plenty of lobster, I believe. So, you know, it's, it's great. It's great to have the, you know, to be able to look after the local market and have the local people eating our Australian lobster. Managing Director of Ferguson Australia Group, Andrew Ferguson, speaking there with Elsie Adamo about the future of the lobster industry if and when China reopens the Australian lobster market. Uh, Roger on the text line says, thank you, Tony, and all at ABC for a great year. Stay safe, great Christmas, and look forward to next year. Good on you, Roger. Thank you very much, and thanks for your input over the year as well. Hope you and the family have a Fantastic Christmas and a, a great new year. Now, coming up, it's been a huge year for the rural property market in Tasmania. Details shortly. G'day, it's Rick from your breakfast show on ABC Radio Hobart. You've done a sterling job raising money for the ABC Giving Tree. Your generosity will make a huge difference for someone, a family, in need at this time of year. I'll be taking a break for a few weeks, but you'll be waking up with Mel Bush each weekday. From me and all of us here at ABC Radio Hobart, have a very Merry Christmas. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
And the text line number, by the way, 0438922936. It has been a phenomenal year in real estate, according to Rural Specialist for Elders, Crichton Horton. Agricultural land values have risen between 30 and 40%. Properties are changing hands quickly. Crichton says there's plenty of money flowing in ag at the moment, despite months of terrible weather. Oh, Meg, the, the last 12 months has been phenomenal. It just keeps getting nearer. Um, we get to the stage now we're struggling to find the right properties. Oh, my goodness. What, what do you mean? Well, people are putting properties on the market and they're selling probably faster than we can find, good quality properties in particular. Um, you know, they keep getting dearer. Um, there's, there's still a lot of, or has been certainly a lot of demand out there the last 12 months. Um, some corporate, some private. It's just, just climbing all the time. What do you think is going on there? It's very common, obviously, for properties to change hands a lot during things like drought. Obviously, that hasn't been the problem. Look, I guess the commodity commodities is quite good. You know, the, the stock is quite expensive. You know, there's, there's plenty of money being made um, in the rural sector. Um, you know, the, the dairy industry is quite buoyant. Um, the beef industry is quite good. So, there's, you know, there's plenty of money flowing through and it's just, it just passes on and, and comes back to the land. People want to, to improve. Um, and as they buy more land and, and pay more for it, their, their asset then gets uh, a step up. You know, if they've paid $10,000 an acre for a block and they buy the one next door for 12 or 13, all of a sudden that block that they've bought is, uh, is an extra $3,000 an acre in their equity. So it, uh, you know, it all works along. And there's some corporates coming in, of course. If you could put a ballpark figure on how much you reckon prices have gone up over the last year, what would it be? Oh, look, I reckon, depending on where it is and what it is, but, but some properties have gone up probably 4 30 to 40%. Wow. Who's buying yeah. those? I've sold some properties on King Island this year that a guy had. Um, he paid $4,000 for four years ago almost to the day um, and sold it for $8,000. Speaking of King Island, what's been happening over there? That's an area that you're quite um, fond of? Yeah, look, there again, it's like everywhere else. King Island country in the last seven or eight years has gone from 1500 to $2,000 an acre up to that eight, eight, even a little bit over $8,000 an acre now. Um, and, and very well sought after. Has um, What's been happening with dairy over there? I know that there's not many dairy farmers supplying the King Island dairy anymore. Have those been changing hands? Look, the dairy farms haven't been or changing hands in-house a little bit, but nothing majorly um, in the dairy industry on King Island. The, the farms seem to be getting fewer and fewer. There's been a few turned to beef and a few sold off. Um, so, yeah, look, certainly nothing... Nothing expanding in the dairy industry that I can see at the moment. Just thinking over the last year, are there, are there any properties that really have stuck out in your mind? Oh, look, there's been some quite good ones in the Circle Head area that's been sold to some of the corporates. Um, magnificent properties, um, you know, and they've made, made exceptional money. Well, at the time, we thought it was exceptional money, but, you know, here we are 12, 14, 15 months later and, uh, and they're probably worth you know, three or $4,000 an acre again. Um, and look, I think, I think Meg, we're probably hitting a stage now where it's settling. Um, you know, I don't say there'll be a correction, but I think it'll settle a little bit. Um, so it'll be interesting to see over the next 12 months where we go, especially with interest rates and things like that starting to move. Mm, so a bit of settling. That was going to my next question was, what are you foreseeing over the next 12 months? Well, that's, that's really hard to, to um, comment on because. Twelve months ago, I would have said, "Look, I think we've peaked and it's going to be, it's going to settle," but it hasn't, and it, it kept going you. up. <laughs> no. um, so yes, obviously. So, um, but I think there must be a point 
with no return, you know, and I said interest rates are lifting, um, all that sort of stuff. So, like I said, I don't think we'll see a reduction, but I think I'm, I'm tipping that we've sort of peaked now and we'll probably settle along where we're sitting at the moment. And, and you know, at the moment, you know, land, good good countries ranging from 12000 to, to $20,000 an acre. Just a casual 20000 an acre, no worries. That's it. That's it. I... Um, I was talking to a guy last week that uh, I didn't sell it. I think it was a private sale, but I heard of one block being sold for twenty-one thousand dollars an acre uh, in that uh, in that Burnie district. Oof, lucky to uh, be the owner selling that on at the moment. Absolutely. We've been hearing lots of warnings about people defaulting on their loans, their mortgages for homes. Is that common in the farming world? Look, doesn't seem to be. Uh, I would have to say it's been a number of years since I've had to. Had to sell a farm under a mortgagee system. Um, yeah, now at the moment it's quite buoyant. Most people are, are getting on quite okay with the with the loan debt to ratio and, and handle it quite well. Well, that's good to know that that could be quite heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, as I said, you know, with the commodities and prices moving forward, um, people have taken that into account. It'll be interesting as as interest rates rise and depending. I mean, yeah, we're talking six, seven, eight percent, which is not. A lot compared to 15, 16 years ago when it was 18%. Um, and we all had properties back then and managed. We probably didn't make much money, but we, we managed to hold on to them and, and make a living out of it. So the real estate industry and the rural real estate industry in particular has always been stable. You know, it, it, it'll, it'll occasionally have a correction or it'll sit for three or four or five years, but it generally keeps moving forward and it seems to be all over the country. So, you know, I, I don't say there's any bad days coming, but it'll certainly settle down a little bit. Great. Thanks, Crichton. No worries, Nick. Merry Christmas. Have a good and holiday. I'm planning on it. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Elders Rural Specialist Crichton Horton speaking there to Meg Powell, our reporter, about a phenomenal year in agricultural real estate. And if you're wondering uh, how many acres to the hectare, 2.47, just under two and a half acres to the hectare. So it's big money, isn't it, when you're talking 21,000 per acre? I said about 50,000 per hectare. That's big money. Okay, uh, how's the veg- vegetable industry heading into a brand new year? We'll find out in just a moment. Know your emergency plan this summer. Third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, floods, fertiliser shortages, shortages in a lot of things. It's been one heck of a year for vegetable growers in Tasmania and indeed across the mainland as well. Some interesting vegetable prices during the year, some shortages as well. Remember the lettuce, the $12 lettuce? So how are vegetable farmers approaching the new year? Reporter Meg Powell managed to catch Harvest Moon's Mark Cable in a quiet corner of an airport to have a chat about the year that was in the vegetable industry and also his appointment to the AusVeg board. It's obviously representing Tasmania and, and obviously just representing our whole industry to make sure that we get the right outcomes for um, uh, veggie producers Australia-wide. Basically, it's four meetings a year, uh, monthly phone link-ups with the executive board, and as I said, just to make sure that Ausveg is on the and, and, and making sure that our, our levy 
funds are directed through HIA in the right direction. Just another hat for you to add to your um, wall there, your large wall. Well, look, it's more about making sure that you know we get the right um, messages across to the industry. So uh, Mike Radcliffe had done that well for the last three years. Um, since he you know sold his farms, he's no longer a, a veggie farmer. So um, there was a position vacant, and uh, they uh, asked me would I would I help and represent? And I said, of course, for the better of the industry. Hopefully I can create some better for the industry. Speaking of the industry, it's the end of the year now. What has this year looked like for the vegetable industry? Uh, for the fresh market, guys, look, it, it's, it's been challenging but very rewarding. Veggie prices right across the board for the last 12 months have been quite strong, or 10, 11 months. Uh, all these extreme weather events Australia-wide, and obviously you know, we all have seen what's been unfolding in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland and even through Victoria. So the old supply and demand forces have been at their best. You know, some of our crops haven't been that good, but the prices have been very good, so that's helped us. So, yeah, no, it's been hard work on the farms, constantly getting the right product out of the door week in, week out. But as I said, that was that was helped by some strong prices. Those um, $12 lettuces, was that this year or was that last year? No, well, that was during the winter this year. Look, unfortunately, we don't grow lettuce anymore. This is always the way. Uh, for many years, we, we battled with iceberg. So, but, you know, good on to those guys. But similarly, we, you know, we've had strong pricing for cauliflowers for cabbage. And, and, you know, back in February and March, we had strong pricing on, on broccoli as well. So, no, no, we can't complain. Uh, as I said, it's been challenging for, for our yields, but also more so challenging to get the right pickers and also challenging, um, you know, with the, with the costumes, with the increasing cost of fertiliser, labour. You know, now next year we're steering down the barrel of, of, of power and, and other associated costs. That segues really nicely into my next question. What's coming up in the next 12 months? Yeah, look, you know, we're, we're hoping that fertiliser pricing will come back. But, you know, in the same token, you know, we, we're getting messages from seed companies that seed's going up. You know, all machinery's going up. So that's, that's a real challenge. And then you've got to get it. Um, you know, we're putting orders in now for specialised machinery that's going to be, you know, 15 months. I mean, it's, it's basically just 12 months just for a basic tractor. And again, you know, we're looking at, you know, 25 to 30% increases on, uh, on, on gear. So that's a real challenge. Look, the Labor one has settled down, Meg, and we've been very fortunate in Australia. We've, we've been able to tap into the Pacific Islands. So that's worked really well. You know, we've got plenty of labour, even though... You know, the costings of it have, have increased with all these new uh, uh, wage uh, increases and, and, and restrictions and, and other issues as far as you know, peace rates and penalty rates. So, um, But at least we've got labour because that has been a real challenge over the last two and a half years during COVID. A nice change then. Yeah, yeah, look, it is. You know, the semi-skilled labour segment is still very tight, you know, and, and obviously, you know, in the, in the veggie game, we're competing with, now, the berry industry, we're competing with the salmon and the, and the fish industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of good things happening in Tassie. So, you know, that area of semi-school, whether it's forklift drivers, truck drivers, tractor drivers, you know, very vital parts of our operation. Uh, it's, a, it's a very tight and competitive market. So that's probably the, the biggest challenge at the moment. All this, uh, all this talk of food is making me a little bit hungry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess. What's on the cable family table for Christmas? 
Oh, definitely loads of broccoli and spinach. Of course, of course. Greens, very important. (laughs) Lots of greens. And I've got to say spinach at the moment, especially with all the uh, concerns at the moment over um, uh, food safety in the spinach sector. So Mm. luckily, uh, Harvest Moon grows lots of spinach for all the major packets in Australia. And I can say with confidence that uh, it's not our spinach at the centre of this turmoil and our spinach is safe and uh, and, and most of them are within Australia. Unfortunately, it's just one little isolated grower in, in Victoria that's uh, that's had an issue with some contamination, weed contamination. And uh, but yeah, no, lots of lots of greens. Meg, hopefully, we'll have some uh, fresh green beans, uh, some broccoli, and uh, and spinach. Yum. Now, without being rude here, how on earth do you make spinach taste good? Got any tips? Straight off the paddock, it, it is the best. Oh, well. straight into a straight into a salad. Uh, or even with some uh, with some prawns, it's pretty good. Oh, I can't think of anything worse, but I'm sure I'm sure to each their own, hey. Well, it's the Popeye food. Look at it, Popeye. <laughs> mm, I'll keep these muscles small for now. Thanks, Mark. Anything you want to add to all that? No, look, I think uh, the industry in Tasmania is in a pretty good position. So uh, both fresh and processing, and, and all the cropping industry. So yes, poppy guys are doing it a bit tough at the moment, but by and large. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's lots of positives out there, Meg. We've got these water schemes rolling out. You know, again, uh, we, we've got the, some of the best soil in, in Australia. We've got the freshest air and, and, and the most reliable and freshest water. So I think uh, there's lots of positives and uh, hopefully we'll have another good year rolling into uh, 23, 24. Mark Cable, Merry Christmas. Have a great holiday. Thanks, Meg. You two and all the team at uh, ABC Rural. Yeah, thank you. Harvest Moon co-owner and newly appointed AusVeg board member Mark Cable reflecting with Meg Powell on the highs and lows of the vegetable market over the last year. And still to come on the country hour, we'll hear from Taz Women in Agriculture about their New Year plans. Also, some interesting decisions with rural internet connections. Uh, A few interesting ones uh, which you might find amusing coming up. Plus a check on the weather, of course. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. The medals of Sir Ernest Edward Weary Dunlop have been stolen during a burglary in Melbourne. Letters to and from the Australian war hero, along with other jewellery and electrical equipment, were also taken during the break-in in Turak earlier this week. Dunlop was an Australian surgeon who became known for saving the lives of hundreds of fellow inmates in World War II, Japanese prisoner of war camps. The Tasmanian government has engaged a rural health care provider for Campbelltown, though it's only a temporary solution. Last month, residents in the northern Midlands town of Campbelltown grew concerned the local hospital run by the state government was going to be left without a doctor after the current provider announced it would stop providing GP services. Health Minister Jeremy Rockcliffe has today announced the government has secured a temporary agreement with Oka Health, which is considering opening a private practice in the town. And all-rounder Cameron Green says his quiet start to the test summer has been a result of the Australian team performing well. The 23-year-old Green wasn't required to bat in the first test against the West Indies and made single-figure scores in the second test. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. G'day, listeners. Yes, and it is Christmas, Michael. Remember? Oh, <laughs> not Easter. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you uh, feel like a bit of a bunny, did you? <laughs> I, I, if people weren't listening, yes, then happy Easter. Uh, That's Christmas. okay. Uh, That's okay. I'll yeah. do that. I do that. I feel about two inches tall then. No, but, no. Uh, I've got over it now. No. I, I thought you might have got an Easter egg when you got home, maybe. <laughs>
but you didn't. Uh, okay, we, we better talk weather, the rainfall. Uh, what's been happening, any? Yeah, there's been a one location, namely King Island, has had any rainfall uh, up to 9 a.m. this morning, and they had two millimetres there and at King Island Gauge, and then also at the city of Melbourne Bay, which is another site on King Island, they had two millimetres. No rainfall elsewhere around the state, and no rainfall since 9 a.m. this morning. Yeah, there you go. I didn't know there was a city of Melbourne Bay on King Island. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, not sure exactly where it is, but it's up there on King Island. The things you find out <laughs> yeah. via the weather. Um, now the outlook, uh, the all-important outlook as we head into uh, the Christmas weekend. Yeah, so uh, for the rest of today, there's there's a chance of a of a light shower mainly in elevated areas about about the central plateau and the and the north um, in the, the afternoon, but only one or two millimetres at the most. Uh, tomorrow there's uh, more wide, widespread showers through most of the state, except perhaps the far west coast um, and maybe the far north coast as well. But um, some, some, some showers more scattered tomorrow. There's also a chance of a thunderstorm tomorrow afternoon and perhaps early evening, but only a slight chance through most of the state. Uh, and the... the, the Target area will probably be the central east, as as is um, usually what happens uh, for thunderstorms. And um, so temperatures will be in the low 20s for today, tomorrow, and into the weekend as well. It's looking like the Christmas Day and Christmas Eve weather will be similar, which is perhaps a shower into the west with a westerly sort of a flow. And the rest of the state is at most partly cloudy, low low um, 20s maximum temperatures, minimum temperatures in the low teens. So lovely sort of weather and wind's not too strong, just like a light west and northwesterly wind for both days. That sounds great. So good for indoor or outdoor. That's right, yeah. Either, either. Okay. Um, what about early next week? What's going to happen there? Are we getting a bit warmer? Yeah, so in, into next week, uh, we get some really warm air coming down. Uh, and the whole of the western mainland is, is, is warming up at the moment with the monsoon trough developing in the, uh, around the top end, and it's dragging some hot air down. And then that gets dragged down with a, uh, with a trough coming over the bite into next week and we start to really warm up. Um, We're expecting temperatures around the 30 degree mark perhaps on Wednesday and Thursday into southeast Tasmania and perhaps a day earlier up into the north so maybe Tuesday, Wednesday for Launceston maybe near 30s so high 20s early 30s sort of range. Um, So yeah quite warm and on Wednesday, Tuesday to Thursday next week, and the minimum temperatures overnight could be quite, could be close to 20 on a few of those days. So, very warm conditions. I can hear the complaints now. The big whinging about it's too hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> sure to come, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, warnings. What have we got? Absolutely none. So the winds are quite light on at the moment, so there's no wind warnings around the state and um, no warnings of any other type. Okay, so good conditions to uh, head out on the waters, have a fish, a swim. Yeah, the wind the winds are quite light on, so I'll just run through today and tomorrow's winds. Today, east northeasterly is at 10 to 20 knots, tending more variable about 10 knots in the west. And also tonight, uh, this evening, uh, southeasterly is in the northwest of the state. Tomorrow the winds will be variable up to about 10 knots, um, it, it, although in the afternoon they'll be tending west to northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots, 
around the state, except for in the east where they'll be north to northwesterly at about 15 knots. The swells for today, we've got in the west and south, we have a southwesterly at one to two metres. Tomorrow that'll be increasing to southwesterly at two to two and a half metres. In the north today and tomorrow over westerly up to a metre. Uh, in the east of the state for today. There's a southwesterly to southeasterly at uh, around one metre. Tomorrow it um, turns into a northeasterly at one to one and a half metres. There's also a southwesterly at one to two metres offshore in the south. And the wave riders? Cape Sorrell's at 1.2 metres and Mariah Islands at 0.8 metres right at the moment. And just before you go, Michael, Glenn on the text line says, uh, Tony, Sydney to Hobart, will the bomb predict a fast race? Uh, I'm not a yacht expert, but uh, we'll be, there'll be, there's certain to be northeasterly winds because there's a ridge moving like north-south up the Tasman Sea. Um, so I think that makes the boats a bit quicker, um, but I, I'm, I'm not an expert. But uh, northeasterly winds, they're not looking especially strong, but uh, you know, quite, quite good northeasterly winds. Yeah, so the conditions should be comfortable and uh, a bit of wind there for them to assist. Yeah, and maybe they'll get a bit of a sea breeze to bump them up to Derwent uh, whenever they come in. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes they take a while, don't they? They do. Okay, Michael, thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. We talk to you tomorrow? Uh, you'll, have, you'll be lucky to have Luke tomorrow. Luke tomorrow. Will you have a great Christmas, you and your family, and uh, we'll talk um, next week sometime maybe. You too, Tony. Cheers. Good on you, Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A four three eight nine double two nine three six. that text line number. And this year you've probably heard a lot of references to living in a post-COVID world. While the virus is still around us, ag industries and the people that work in them are getting on with business, especially at the moment with all the harvests going on, including not-for-profit group Taz Women in Ag. Larissa Smith sat down with ex- executive member Di Barr to find out what's in store for the year ahead. Our revenue is based on grants and also our members' fees. So we're actually looking to do a lot more technical professional development or technical development in the agriculture sector, 2023-45. So that's part of the plan. We are a female-based organisation, so we'll be looking at doing our technical training focused on women's learning. Men are welcome, but it'll be learning for women at the heart of what we're doing. And you feel that's a better approach for some women? Certainly. um, I learned that on my time in the Pacific, is that women often will sit back and allow men to be the demonstrators, to be the, you know, the people, and they won't ask the questions, etc. So we um, are implementing female-focused learning. doesn't mean that can't be learning for everybody, but it'll be the women that get the opportunities to demonstrate first, etc. And what are the sorts of themes that you'd like to run through the next year if you are doing some, some special training? We'd very much like to do the um, Beyond the Farm Gate uh, methodology that we've used in the past. It'll be visiting farms to um, getting to know other people, networking, see mutual problems and solutions, and share innovation. And then in the later part of the day, we'll do some form of technical training. And the things we've identified from our survey of members is um, farm safety, including dam safety and fire safety. 
we'll be working with partners um, to actually implement this. So for an example, the, farm, the fire safety will be with red hot tips from the Tasmanian Fire Service. Also, a lot of our members talked about the importance of understanding financial structures and uh, succession planning. There's a lot of issues around family farms and how you plan in advance for that succession planning. Biosecurity is also a, another big one and the, the enhanced risks because of um, climate change. We will be getting more and more pests at different times and it's really important that people understand if they notice something on their farm, what to do and how to go about it. Pasture management is another um, area of demand. Um, super women on rural roads. So that's something that they've done in the past through TWIA that was really, really successful. Several of our members on the executive are very interested in regenerative farming. So um, land use and soil health, that sort of thing. And this program will be over three years. Oh, innovation and produce marketing as well is an area that we've been asked to actually find some experts and share with our members. Yeah, you've got a fair bit going on. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, um, it, it's dependent upon getting some grants, but we also will try to run it without the grants um, on a user pay basis. You also give out Marcus Oldham Scholarship. Will that be happening? Uh, yes, the Marcus um, Oldham Scholarship, um, leadership scholarships are open at the moment. I think they close sometime in January and we send at least two people every year um, to that, we usually sponsor one ourselves, and some of our partners um, sponsor the other one. Um, we have three Sprout scholarships through the Sprout organization as every year that we fund as well. How important <laughs> are those two scholarships for the organization and, and your members? I think very important because um, they focus on women and leadership in agriculture in Tasmania, and almost everybody who has taken part in those scholarships have gone on to either be leaders in the industry or leaders with the organization. Um, we have two um, new executive members at the moment this year, Sasha and Hannah, and both of them were Marcus Oldman winners last year. And they're quite young as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, which is great. Um, it's really good. As you know, globally, one of the issues with uh, agriculture industry is the aging nature I'm not sure what is in Tassie, but I know in other places it's in their 50s and 60s. So it's wonderful to see a couple of young women. And they will be leaders, both Sasha and Hannah, in the industry going forward. You can see from the energy they have. Looking back at the last 12 months, what can you take away from the season? And you're not an agricultural producer, but you're no. surrounded by, by plenty of women who are. Women share innovation. I find um, it's something we do, we talk, we discuss, we problem solve together. We're used to working in groups. So it's been really great to see some of the disbursement of innovations in the industry. Um, one of the things I've noticed is um, agritourism is coming on more and more and more. Women often are responsible for off-farm income to support the family um, on the farm. And there's more and more work being done to actually have that off-farm income coming in by tourism. Um, so there's lots more tourism in Tassie. As you know, we're very short of beds at times when we're at market. So it's really great to see the number of people that are interested in diversifying business. Um, and also the food, the food sort of focus that small holders in Tasmania have. So it sprouts very much into those sort of small industries. And it's really exciting to see. We're very looking forward to 
having more face-to-face. -face. COVID, as you know, interrupted all that face-to-face. -face. We tried to continue events online, but it's just not the same. It worked, but it's not the same. It will never totally replace. It has allowed the executive to meet regularly, though, by going online. We now only get together about twice a year. That's Di Barr from Tasmanian Women in Agriculture talking to Larissa Smith about their plans for next year. Going to be a busy year in agriculture. Uh, Will on the text line. Have a listen to this. Uh, Will says, yes, many thanks to our ABC through all of our difficulties and trying times. She has led us through as we evolve into new appreciations and developments. It could be said that the ABC, especially country, our landline science and discovery programs and like shows, they become Australia, just as a beautiful dress becomes a beautiful woman. And indeed, our favourite auntie. <laughs> Best wishes to all from Will. Thank you, Will. Happy Christmas to you and your family. Very poetic, that. Evocative, that's what it is. Now to the internet, and while Twitter users across the globe have boycotted billionaire Elon Musk, who controversially purchased the social platform before promptly sacking more than 3,000 staff and reinstating Donald Trump's membership, rural Australians haven't been as quick to knock him. The reason? His internet service, Starlink, works where competitor services don't. Alice Marshall has this report. From his cattle farm near Roma, Peter Thompson, the chair of the National Farmers Federation Telecommunications Committee, laughs at the idea of replacing his work ute with a Tesla. But he's happy to pay $140 each month into Elon Musk's back pocket. Having battled for years with multiple internet modems, data-sharing SIM cards and other Wi-Fi-boosting gadgets, Mr Thompson was at his wit's end before he was introduced to Musk's internet provider, Starlink. Up until recent times, we had to spend an absolute fortune, up to $2,500 a month to have enough modem SIM cards to uh, share our data, to get enough data to operate. Basically, we're a family farm with two families here, and through COVID, we had another family out here as well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was what we had prior to Starlink. Obviously, COVID uh, brought about the, uh, well, there already was Zoom meetings and whatever, but now we've got Zoom and Teams and Google, and, you know, there's, We've got things like um, you know, MBN Skymaster. We're not in a fixed wireless footprint here, so only satellite. But a big issue with that is the, the uh, very big ping speeds, for those that don't know what ping is. Uh, but just to give an idea, mobile generally is about 32 milliseconds. Um, we're finding that the... Um, Skymaster satellites can be six to seven hundred, and that's simply the physical time it takes a signal to go from here up to those high satellites and back. But uh, Starlink is pretty consistent around 34 to 45, so very close to mobile ping speed. So you don't get that delay you know, if you're on an online meeting. Starlink is different to a service like NBN Skymaster, though. It uses thousands of low-Earth orbit satellites, or LEOs, to connect people in remote areas, and it's now available Australia-wide. The Thompsons installed their own Starlink service in May, and they can't believe the difference it's made. And how do you find it? Uh, really simply bloody fantastic. The only outage... We've had a couple of little blip outages, which you can go on your app and see when they are and what they are. Nothing that... to the this point has caused us any issue at all. We had one massive, massive storm 
uh, we used to find with the old geostationary satellite that even just too much cloud in the sky would um, drop them out. They're up 10,000 k's up. These ones are uh, only, uh, the LEO satellites are only, depending who they are, sort of 500 to 1,000 k's, so not as anywhere near as affected by cloud. But the um, this massive storm, we did drop out uh, for about 20 minutes and it resorted itself and yeah, hasn't missed a beat, so... Um, yeah, really like it. Jennifer Medway is the manager of the Regional Tech Hub, an independent body that offers advice and support to people in rural, regional and remote areas. She says they've seen a big uptake in people switching to Starlink across Australia and that it benefits everyone in rural and remote areas, not just those who sign up for it. It's a slightly different model perhaps than what we're used to in Australia. For instance, Starlink want to sell straight to the customers, whereas you know we can see with NBN, for instance, there's retail service providers that are actually the ones that are the interface with consumers. So, look, they are doing things a little bit differently. And, and with that competition and with that new edge of a way of doing business, it certainly, um, you know, disrupts the market somewhat. But that's a good thing. Um, you know, and, I've, and you know, speaking with some of the other providers, it's a good thing that, you know, they there is options. Um, you know, to be honest, people, I'm sure, um, you know, some of the other the providers, if they're helping service people in rural regional, um, then that's a good thing. And, and look, look, we do find that the people that do, um, that have, uh, you know, installed uh, um, Starlink are actually enjoying that service. We don't hear, um, you know, too many issues, um, given the fact that there are some, you know, there are challenges around the fact of not having, you know, shop fronts, for instance, in Australia or, um, you know, that sort of connectivity that they can actually speak to someone. But, um, you know, there are other positives as well. But on her family-run grain and cattle property near Glen Morgan, on Queensland's Western Downs, Wendy Henning feels like she's tried every gadget available. We're on SkyMuster Plus. So when there seems to be, um, you know, whatever it was and whatever reasons that, you know, um, our service isn't strong enough for us to be doing what we're wanting to do on our devices, we then um, hop on to our mobile um, data plans and we will hotspot devices if it's not directly linked um, with a data plan. We'll hotspot to laptops and things to that to be able to ensure that we can have that connectivity. Along with that, we have significant family data sharing packages on our um, mobile phone plans, which we use as our backup for hotspotting and also for um, data downloading and uploading as well. And for that, we aren't in a mobile so service um, guaranteed area. So, um, well, some probably say we are, but we don't. So we've then got a um, mobile booster as well, um, the old Selfie system, and we've recently upgraded that as well so that we've um, got a tower to make sure we have enough connection when the power's running to um, the internet in whatever way we can. Despite all of this... It's the thought of changing internet providers yet again that is holding Wendy Henning back from installing Starlink. Yeah, so I have been looking and I suppose now after um, so many years um, of different, you know, um, solutions being sold to us or being um, advised to us that, you know, are going to be the the golden egg of our connection problems. I I am very aware of the Starlink um, pro... um, system and of people that have have made that change over and are loving it i guess um (laughs) the cynical is probably where i would describe myself at the moment and just sitting back and watching because that's how we were sold our mobile data plans and that's how we were sold our sky master plans and things these were going to be our answer so i guess i'm sitting back just watching to make sure 
Yeah, Wendy Henning running a family cattle and grain business near Glen Morgan on Queensland's Western Downs, ending that report from Alice Marshall. On the internet problems in some rural areas and the possible fix of that problem via Starlink, the internet connection satellite service owned by Elon Musk. Well, further to that, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has knocked back a deal proposed by the nation's third biggest mobile phone network to share phone towers and spectrum with Telstra. It would have given TPG customers better coverage in regional areas. Telstra argued it would have reduced congestion in the bush as well. The ACCC's Mick Keogh explained to David Clawton why he disagrees. Well, we have to assess the decision on the basis of either its effect on competition in the mobile market, particularly in regional zones of Australia, or in the event that competition is going to be diminished, then whether there's benefits associated with it that outweigh the the deficits. Now, on both those uh, tests, we weren't satisfied that the result would be um, a better long-term competitive situation for mobile telephony users in uh, regional Australia, but also Australia more generally. So it would have allowed the largest uh, supplier of telephone services, being Telstra, to join up with the third largest, which is uh, TPG, under this agreement. Um, in the regional zones, they would still be separate um, telephone companies in the um, metropolitan area, but in the regional zones. And our concern is that that reduces the potential future competition which, of course, we know is critical to improving coverage and getting uh, better telecommunication services in regional areas. But t- for TPG, it would have improved their coverage in regional areas, yeah? But only to the extent that Telstra provided that coverage. In other words, TPG would be completely dependent on Telstra for its coverage in the regional zone. And in the case of 5G services, would actually have to wait six months after Telstra uh, switched on 5G services in regional areas before it could also offer 5G services. So, um, yes, it would mean that TPG customers would obtain coverage in a lot of areas in the regional zone that they don't currently have it, but it also meant that um, longer term uh, it's enti- it would be entirely up to Telstra to determine what investments to make to improve that coverage. Um, It would result in one completely dominant supplier of networks in the regional zones, and that would be Telstra, uh, and that dominance would be on the basis of both uh, the number of towers and the infrastructure they have in those zones and uh, the spectrum that they would acquire in those zones as a result of this deal. And uh, our concern is that that would mean that other providers either wouldn't enter or in the case of existing providers would see that it's no longer worth their while to try and expand their coverage because Telstra is so dominant. So I guess we likened it to a uh, uh, the recent football grand final where one side was so dominant that uh, the other side uh, no longer uh, was competing effectively and, uh, and therefore no advantage was coming out of that competition. Mm. And no one likes to watch a one-sided match. Now, now, Telstra and TPG offered court-enforceable undertakings to address your concerns. Why wasn't that good enough? When we had a look at the um, undertaking that was offered, it consisted of um, principally um, a provision that um, 
TPG wouldn't decommission um, any of its existing infrastructure in the short term. Um, there were quite a few qualifications on that. Um, remembering this deal involves TPG shutting down um, some hundreds of its existing towers and giving another 169 to Telstra um, as part of the deal. So basically the, the undertaking really only secured what was already going to happen because a lot of those towers were under leasehold agreements which would require TPG to uh, continue to have them in place for at least some period of time and, and we weren't satisfied that longer term, particularly um, over, say, a 10-plus year period, that those towers would be maintained and that, of course, then meant any chance of TPG, for example, further developing its coverage in regional areas or indeed combining with Optus, for example, and, and really creating a competitive second coverage in, in, uh, in regional areas would have disappeared. Well, th- this is a huge concern, isn't it, for people living in regional areas, particularly when there are emergencies and they need access to mobile phones. And So what do you think is the future then? What's going to happen next for people living in rural and remote areas, you know, desperate for improved well, services? Well, a couple of a couple of points you're covering there. One, one is what happens next? Well, it's, it's obviously up to any of the parties involved in this decision to appeal the decision should they wish to, and that could go to the competition tribunal or ultimately the courts. So that um, is a process that obviously the parties will be considering. The second is that there's already an inquiry underway, the Regional Telephone Infrastructure Inquiry, um, which is looking at specifically the issue of resilience of um, mobile telephone infrastructure during emergencies and what arrangements might need to be put in place there. So that may involve, for example, a recommendation for compulsory roaming um, uh, during periods of emergency or some other arrangement so that um, the sort of problems that were encountered during the Black uh, um, the Black Saturday fires uh, a couple of years ago hopefully won't arise again and that people will still be able to get mobile coverage even if um, one local tower um, is, is knocked out. That's Mick Keogh speaking to David Claughton about the ACCC's decision to reject a proposal for TPG to merge some services with Telstra. Ending the country hour for today, just before we go, Doug from White Beach. G'day, Doug. He says, hi, Tony. City of Melbourne Bay named after shipwreck of that name. Nice coloured rocks and for sure lovely place. And all of King Island was there five years ago. Best wishes, Doug from White Beach. Thanks, Doug. Uh, You have a great Christmas to you and your family. Okay, country hour again tomorrow. Uh, Richard Bailey will wrap up the livestock markets. We'll catch you after midday.